And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch. But, but oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a geek history of time, where we bring nerdery into the real world. And as you can tell by my voice, I am not Ed Blaylock. I am, in fact, Damien Harmony. Ed Blaylock is in temporary assignment in Tulsa, Oklahoma today. Uh, so I am Damien Harmony. I am a history teacher. Actually, I'm a Latin teacher who also teaches history on occasion, uh, and a father of two, and a pug owner. Uh, and with me tonight, I have a special guest. I am Tim Watts, and I am not a teacher, uh, but I am a nerd, so I guess that qualifies <laughs> me to be here. Uh, also, I am a former podcaster, as well as on the side, uh, comic book, oh, I guess now I can say writer. I've always been an artist my whole life, but I've, I'm writing a, a book now, so I guess I can add writer to that. You have both written and arted yes. comic books. I have arted. Uh, yeah, not, not like... Just to set expectations, not like Marvel, DC, and things like that. Sure, sure. I've self-published things. I've done web comics. Um, the newest project I have is something that's in the preliminary stages that I'm getting ready to send out, send out to publishers to see if I can get a publisher that would like to put it out for me. Awesome. Um, barring that, I will self-publish once again. But uh, I'm, I'm liking where this new project is going, so I'm pretty optimistic. That's great. Uh, I, I definitely want to let you plug uh, at the end of uh, the episode. Sure. So if you're okay with that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we're awesome. very early on, you know, okay. so the book isn't going to be coming out anytime soon, but uh, I'd be happy to just give a little snippet of what it's about. That'd be rad. Yep. Okay, awesome. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to talk about a comic book that turned into a movie, uh, which several of those have. Um, <laughs> One or two. Yeah, just a couple. Uh, so, but uh, actually, I'm going to uh, talk about a comic book that turned into a movie called V for Vendetta. Um, where the movie was actually way more popular than the comic uh, upon yeah, that, their inceptions. Yeah, it was more of a cult thing. I mean, yep. Alan Moore, obviously, hugely popular. So sure. with, within that genre, it was a popular um, book, but it wasn't anything, you know, like a Dark Knight, Watchmen. It, it, didn't, right. it didn't approach those levels. Right, at least not at first printing. And, and yeah. you'll see um, several times that there are uh, several iterations of it. It's essentially the same story over and over again, but uh, each time, like people start to grab onto it more, and then mm-hmm. when it does become a movie, that's when people just go ape shit over it. And it was also so. under the Vertigo imprint, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. which was always a, a smaller slice of the pie. Yes, it had a very specific uh, readership, yep. and I think a lot of people um, may have overlooked it or dismissed it because mm-hmm. it was a Vertigo book. Because they were yeah. into that slice, you know, the the swamp things and the yeah. other things that were more darker and, and eccentric or esoteric. Yeah. yeah. So no, I absolutely is one of those people. Like, I actually, honestly, yeah. have not read the the comic. Okay. Um, it's a pretty large uh, book. I think it, it was is. twelve issues. I think so. Yeah. One hundred and forty four pages plus. Mm-hmm. But I, I have seen the film. Uh, recently rewatched it just to make sure I didn't make too much of a fool of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll still do that. Um, so the title of this episode is actually called V for Vendetta was overblown for its time, which makes it perfect for our time. Also the movie too, but in a totally different time. I like to title things like early 1800s books. Uh, 
So, uh, so for the listeners, uh, V for Vendetta was, in fact, a graphic novel. Um, it was actually a comic strip. It started off um, kind of... It, like, it was a series. It was a, it was yeah. a miniseries. Yeah. I think a 12-issue miniseries. It, it, but it was uh, in a larger uh, comic set prior to that. Even. Oh, like, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm <clears throat> the, I came to it as a graphic novel after I saw mm-hmm. the movie. Um, and it was written almost right in line with the victory of Thatcherism. Now, on previous episodes, we've discussed Thatcherism, so I won't... Uh, take too much steam from those. Just go back to the old episodes where Ed talked about stuff. Um, it debuted in 1983, and it was wildly uh, unpopular in the anthology in which it was printed. Uh, people didn't give a shit. Uh, they, they, they just didn't. There were other things. It was kind of a, I don't want to say a filler, but it kind of had, doing the research, it kind of seemed to have, like people will retcon their interest in it, now but it seemed to have the same interest that people had in superman when it first came out in that anthology it didn't make a big splash you know kind of like people say that i was always into that band right yeah yeah exactly it's like no you didn't listen to bleach until after heart-shaped box you know and that's okay right but it later got bought up by dc and they published it in color in 10 issues prior to that it had not been in color Mm -hmm. um and they also uh got him to finish the arc too that was the other thing it had been cut off oh okay yeah. Now, you have uh, extensive uh, experience with comics as far as the arting and mm-hmm. the uh, writing. <laughs> um, when something is not colored, do they still ink it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, especially back then in the early 80s, because mm-hmm. nowadays with things being digital, um, there's a little bit of a gray area. Sometimes mm-hmm. they print things, well, not to, not to go into the, off on a tangent, but sure. back in the early 80s, you had... One person that wrote the book, one person that would do the pencil art, and another person that would do inking over top of it. Uh-huh. Not necessarily because the person that penciled it could not do the finished artwork. Sure. It was more for um, expediency and meeting deadlines. Because okay. if you had someone do the pencil art and then handed it off to someone else to ink it, then that first person could start working on the next story. Gotcha. So it was more of an, uh, you know, a forward assembly line right, thing right. without the anti-Semitism. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that you'd bring that up for this one. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, well, let me, let me ask you this then, too, because I've, I've always been curious about this. Now, when someone writes a comic mm-hmm. uh does the art come first or does the writing come oh, first writing always comes first okay so yeah. he writes the dialogue even as well? if it's a bare bones it, it okay. varies from um writer to writer what style okay. they do it for example um everyone knows stan lee yep. i'm assuming yeah yeah so he he developed something they call the marvel method where he would come up with the, the story for the issue no okay. dialogue just a story and it could be an entire detailed plot or a, you know two or three pages or something short uh-huh. and he would hand it off to the artist say like Jack Kirby was a Fantastic sure. Four episode er, issue yeah. and Jack Kirby would lay everything out he would design all the pages all the action and then mm-hmm. when he was done Stan Lee would go back in and he would put in the dialogue balloons based on what the art looked like okay so I have I'm, this idea you produce the art and now I'm going to write the dialogue right and that's how they did it because okay. Stan was doing every book Marvel did so right. it made it faster for him Okay. And which is one of the arguments that I have as an artist as to why Jack Kirby should have more credit for creating the Marvel Universe than he's given. Sure. Because sometimes Stan Lee would give him just, you know, a paragraph of, this happens, this issue. I remember, and then, yeah. And then Jack Kirby would do everything. The Fantastic Four meet God. Yeah. And that was, and that gave us Galactus. So the, the whole right, Galactus the whole, story. Yeah, and it was Jack like, Kirby. And it was one sentence of right. they meet God. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get so, you. So, but... I, I don't know a lot about um, Alan Moore's method, but I have mm-hmm. read enough to know that he was very much different. He was very um, specific and meticulous, and he, he would give specific, you know, panel, you know, page one, panel one, this happens. Here's the dialogue. Oh, okay. Panel, page one, panel two, this happens. Okay. And it depends on the writer. Some of them sure. are super meticulous uh-huh. about 
you know, even to the point of doing thumbnail and stick figure sketches of I want it to look like this. They almost storyboarded out. Almost, they almost okay. storyboarded out. Um, other ones are very loose and, you know, Trust here's what I want artists. to do and, you know, you do your thing. You know, okay. with, like with my book, I am writing and inking the book. I have uh-huh. a penciler who's doing it for me because I'm not good enough. <laughs> but I gave a one-page summary, a summary for each page uh-huh. and left it up to her how to lay out the panels. God, that's so pro wrestling to me. Yeah. You're the booker and right. you're saying here's what the finish needs to be. Yes. And you and have how you this get, many minutes. Right. And, and here's then, how you get how you get there is up to yeah, you. And I want you to get the heat on this this wrestler. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, like with most episodes, I can bring it back to wrestling. Always. Um <laughs> but but I mean it really but, is and, that in my mind, yeah. that's why you're paying them. Sure. To do that. I mean, I why would I be super anal and and handcuff them? Right. You know, when they have an ability, I mean I I partnered with that person because sure. I like what they had to do so sure. let them do it okay but um, from what I from what I recall and what I've read Alan Moore was very um, and not surprisingly very anal retentive about his scripts I do find it interesting because I know his politics he's a uh, anarchist he's an anarchist yeah, yeah he's and so up, for him anarchist, yeah but he's like a pure anarchist not not a you know I just don't care man like okay. he actually has a philosophy behind it right well okay so Alan Moore wrote Batman Killing Joke mm-hmm. he wrote Watchmen he wrote Swamp Thing a bunch of other things he also wrote V for Vendetta, and uh, David Lloyd illustrated it. Uh, in a reprint of all of it, uh, David Lloyd said this about V for Vendetta. So I was reading through my reprint, you know, and, and he said, There aren't many cheeky, cheery characters in V for Vendetta. It's for people who don't switch off the news. Uh, Which, uh, you know me, I love, I love my politics in my art because <laughs> it's already there. So I'd like to just be admitting to it, you know. I don't use my art to escape as much. Although there are times where I really would like to, but I ain't picking V for Vendetta to escape. No, you don't. No. And I can't see your brain letting you escape much. No, it really doesn't. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but in the original DC Comics run of V for Vendetta, so they bought it, right? Um, Alan Moore got to write a foreword as well, and he said, Naivete can also be detected in my supposition that it would take something as melodramatic as a near miss of nuclear conflict to nudge England toward fascism. It's night. So to give you just as a sidebar, um, the general plot in the comic book, and the comic is wildly different than the movie, and okay. we're going to get into those differences. Um, in the comic book, V for Vendetta, uh, England goes fascist because the nuclear war misses them, mm-hmm. and be, and and I'll get into that more. But that's that's a a central plot point that they didn't get hit by a nuclear war that wiped out a lot of other folk. Okay. Um, so he says, it's 1988 now. It's five years after he wrote it. Um, Margaret Thatcher is entering her third term of office and talking confidently of an unbroken conservative leadership well into the next century. The tabloid press are circulating the idea of concentration camps for persons with AIDS. The new riot police wear black visors, as do their horses, and their vans have rotating video cameras mounted on top. The government has expressed a desire to eradicate homosexuality, even as an abstract concept, and one can only speculate as to which minority will be the next legislated against. I'm thinking of taking my family and getting out of this country soon. It's cold, and it's mean-spirited, and I don't like it here anymore. Um, the end of that quote, I remember that. When yeah. we got to the end, I'm like, okay, I remember reading yeah. that. Yeah. So that was 88. So both of these men meant for this comic to mean something. Mm-hmm. So I feel comfortable in taking meaning from it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And at the time, they were reacting to Thatcher and what she meant for the direction of the country. And remember, it was a sharp turn right. Um, And it was after a tumble down that the entire world had in the 70s, uh, which had also happened similarly in the 1930s in the entire world as well. 
Um, and so I, I heard a comedian recently say, um, and, and his first name is Tamar, and I don't remember his last right now, um, but he said that his father always taught him that you should read a history book as though it's a farmer's almanac. <laughs> Interesting. And it's really stuck with me, and yeah. these guys clearly do that. And I'm an historian, and I, al- I already did that, but I didn't know I was doing that, right. you know? Um, as, as Ed would say, I just now noticed the, the pattern on the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's taken on a whole new meaning, uh, Thatcher and the direction of their country. Um, and, and now the comic book itself, like currently in 2019, people reading it now are going to pull wildly different meanings. And some purist is going to say that's impossible. I'm not them. I actually think that art does live and ongoing, and people will pour into art per generation what matters to them the most. Absolutely. And that's I mean, okay. I mean, the intent of the creator may not change. Right. But, I mean, I, uh, you know, the, the comic that I, the webcomic I did before this project mm-hmm. um, was a book called The Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. And the concept was basically there's this nice guy mm-hmm. who has a female friend who he is infatuated with, who likes him, thinks he was a nice guy, but doesn't want to date him. You sure. know, the classic stereotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came up because, you know, my roommate and I, Mike, mm-hmm. were both going through similar things with, with girls like that. So we had this idea. That's where we, we decided to do the comic. And our intent was one thing. Mm-hmm. People took it completely differently. Mm-hmm. And you know, I and I learned, and that was an educational experience for me because this was a very long time ago. Now, when was this? This was around. This was late nineties. Okay. You know, so twenty years ago. So reality bites had come out. D- yeah, and my intent was he's just this nice guy who you know can't catch a break and blah blah, and the internet was you know around nascent. Yeah, yeah, but not fully formed enough for me to get. My ears blown back <laughs> about my passive aggressive misogyny, and yeah. I've never seen it from that point of view, right? Because so many self described nice guys are actually assholes, right? And they think you know they find some girl and oh you you should be so happy that I am paying right. attention to you. I'm actually a gift to you. Right? What are you doing? Exactly. Yes. And that was something that hadn't entered my mind because I never saw it that way. I just saw it as two people, one liked the other one, and mm-hmm. the second one just wasn't into him. Right. And that's kind of where it stopped. It, you know, in our book, the, mm-hmm. the, the male character never had a, you should, you know, you should be grateful to me, blah, blah. That was never part of our narrative because right. that's not how we thought. Right. But I definitely had my eyes opened, and that told me that, it didn't matter what I meant when I created it. Right. You know, what people took from it was what they took from it, and that was their reality, and that was, you know, there's no incorrect way to consume art. Sure. And that was, you know, true for them. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, given that there's no incorrect way to consume art, you are the one who produces art. Mm-hmm. Should you, in current times, be more careful with how your message might get co-opted? When I recognize that that gets towards self-censorship. Right. But it's also self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I have my own internal limits of things that I wouldn't say or wouldn't mm-hmm. put out there just because I, I, don't, I don't think it's appropriate or I don't think it's kind or how, whatever sure. terminology you want to use. Yeah, yeah. There's things that – but I do have to say I don't like the idea – and I sometimes get resentful of, oh, I had this idea. Oh, well, I really can't do that. 
you know, or, right. and, and sometimes it is because, you know, I'm straight white male, which mm-hmm. comes with a certain amount of, you know, baggage and concerns and, and, you know, reactions, Privilege. you know, yeah. if, if I were to, if I were to throw something out, people mm-hmm. would look at it differently just because of, I'm the one putting it out there sure, as opposed sure. to somebody else putting it out there. Mm-hmm. It could be the exact identical message, right? but who is creating it is an issue. And I totally understand why that is. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that it is, sure. but it's the reality that we live in. So, I mean, I, I, I do self-censor for a lack of, of, a, of a better word. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in the, the book that I'm doing now, there are certain conscious choices I made as far as um, the makeup of the, the characters, as far as, you mm-hmm. know, how they look and who they are and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there were logical story reasons why. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just because I think it should be like this and it right. has nothing to do with the story. If you can do it in a way that honors the story and mm-hmm. isn't like lip service to whatever ideology you have, mm-hmm. that's fine. I mean, okay. you can do, you can do whatever you want for whatever reason. Right, but, right, that, right. But, but I think that it's, it's more honest mm-hmm. if there's a, a logical plot driven reason why this would exist. Okay. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Like, um, there's, uh, Chris Claremont. I just saw a, a documentary uh, on it on a streaming service uh, who hasn't given us any money, so I'm not going to plug them. But uh, but on a streaming service, I saw this wonderful documentary with Chris Claremont, and uh, one of the artists that he was uh, that they were talking about about him with, they said uh, very often he would ask the question of, is there any reason this character can't be not white? Mm-hmm. Is there any reason this character can't be a woman? Mm-hmm. And they would, I, I like that question of like recognizing right. your default setting and being like, okay, do we need that default setting here? Does that affect the story? Um, and so I, I don't consider that self-censorship. That's the self-awareness oh, I see. I mean, and that's yeah. something that I did in, in my story also mm-hmm. because, like you said, my default and, and what I am used to and what I grew up around yeah. is a predominantly white environment. Of course. You know, not good or bad. It just is what it is. Yeah, yeah that's that was the, sw- the water you swam in. Yeah, yeah. so I, I do think about that in, in my, not to jump ahead to the end of publishing my book, but my the setting is a post-apocalyptic setting. Okay. And the reason that I looked at the makeup of it was in that environment, right. survival is paramount. You don't care what someone looks like. Right. If they, if they can contribute to the, the group's survival, you want They're them in. in. Yep. You know, no matter what color or gender or anything they are, right, right, if right. they can help, they can help. Right. Which, which is why asking those questions made sense from a story standpoint. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Well, in 79, Thatcher and the Conservative Party... Uh, which was part of a larger worldwide shift from the welfare state to the right. Um, and, it, and, and to understand the welfare state didn't used to be a bad word. <laughs> it was the default setting post-World War II. Everybody left, right, and center believed in the welfare state uh, because they were like, look what happened when we don't have it. Uh, and rightly so. So, um, But she and the uh, conservative party got elected to power in England. Okay. And it's largely, Thatcherism is largely characterized by, and I'm going to paint with a broad brush because it saves time, but it's largely characterized by populist conservatism, uh, both economic and moral, okay? Uh, The model is one that comes out of the ashes of libertarianism, okay? So in the same way that current libertarians tend toward authoritarianism, you know, that idea that that boot stamping a man in the face, on a human face forever could be mine someday, is kind of 
what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I want everybody to be free to stamp faces because what if I need to stamp a face? <laughs> and it's like, whoa, how come you got to go there? Why not, like, you know, go the other route, you know? But, um, but they tend toward that. And it, the, this was born of a strong authoritarian government that would stay out of business. Uh, so Thatcherism, they'd stay out of business, they'd allow for privatization, they would weaken unions, um, and they would make it so that homosexuality, homosexuality, even though it was legal, legally legal, like they passed a law in 1966, um, it was also legislatively discouraged in terms of intentional promotion. Mm-hmm. So normalizing homosexuality in any kind of sexual education classes or curricula <laughs> um, was was now legislated against. So and, and obviously, um, mm-hmm. marriage at that point was it, it, homosexuality was legal, but, hom- but not marriage. Marriage was not right. And yeah. so all the tax, all and the economic like adoption benefits, and things like that, and right. that, that was also not legal. Right. Okay. Yeah. Bec- again, because they weren't a proper family, etc. Right. Yeah. Um, it also recast Christianity into an imminently personal salvation based on religion, right? Uh, instead of a force for social change. And what I mean there is that. Um, God's coming back and he's going to rapture you if you're good enough. He's going to pluck you out of the soup. Whereas prior to that, it had been more of a secular humanism religion of God's coming back and we better get this shit right so he brings us all up together. Mm. So there's this fuck you, I've got mine Mm -hmm. aspect of Christianity that really creeps in in the late 70s, early 80s. And I really blame Anita Bryant for this. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, but that's those things are both kind of cooking together to create Thatcherism or to to bolster Thatcherism and and further the idea of looking strong matters in Thatcherism partly because it's a woman who's prime minister so she's got to be hawkish. Mm-hmm. There is a layer of that. Um, right. In fact, they called her old iron pants. Right. Um, which uh, I I used to joke on Call of Duty that there was an iron pants patch or <laughs> achievement where you could not get shot from behind. And it was the Thatcher patch. (laughs) Uh, But uh, now as a former empire, England wanted to look strong still, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that meant military might, which means that you need to reestablish England as a major military player in a world that hadn't seen superpowers do very well in the previous decade. The 1960s and 70s were the the decades of America failing in Southeast Asia Mm -hmm. and Russia going, oh, we should try that and failing in Central Asia. Right, you know, or, they or wanted... in the middle of failing at this point. They were right. st- they were still failing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They right. just started. Yeah, because like, yeah. eighty two, eighty three. I it was think seventy nine. They invaded they, Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah, and they were there until eighty nine. Until Rambo 90. got them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you knew he would. It will. Yeah, and in <laughs> fact, in Rambo three, in the credits, it actually thanks the Taliban. Oh yeah, he he fights with our buddies. Yeah. you know, Osama. the Taliban. <laughs> Great. Well, we did train them, so it's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. And he hauled a dead goat into the goalpost. I don't get that version of Quidditch, but whatever. <laughs> you know, it's fine. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, like I said, the U.S. just finished losing Vietnam. USSR was on its way to a loss in Afghanistan. Perfect time to puff your chest out, right? <laughs> and lead to an eventual war against penguins in the South Atlantic. Right. So <laughs> this is the soup in which Alan Moore was sitting when he wrote V for Vendetta. Now, I just want to show you this quick aside. Um, this is a panel from V for Vendetta, uh, and I just, there we go, here it is, sorry, technical difficulties, the trouble is with my set, please read what that says. This says, Mr. Carell went on to say that it is the duty of every man in this country to seize the initiative and make Britain great again. It's 1983. (laughs) How fucking prescient. (laughs) 
Fun fact, in 1983, Margaret Thatcher's government failed to properly fund the NHS. I'm just going to say that again. They failed to properly fund the NHS, the National Health Service, their version of uh, human health services that we have. Right. They failed to properly fund it so that it could get its own blood supply up. Thousands of, hem- of hemophiliacs got infected blood that, H- that had HIV or Hep C in it because the NHS had to go on the open market get the lowest bidder and ended up with a supply of clotting factor eight that wasn't nearly regulated enough. So they found somebody who didn't screen their blood. Yay, capitalism. Because again, they had to go to lowest bidder when you are a government entity and you're directed to go lowest bidder. You gotta. Well, they didn't fund them enough to be able to get, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. So the comic strip strip was initially, and again, it was a strip. It was like you know maybe as big as Blondie, you know, okay. or or it. No, I take it back. It was bigger than that because it, it. You're right. It if was. If I recall correctly, yeah. a lot of the British anthologies, it might have been like four or five stories in one issue, and, right. and maybe he did it in like four four six page chunks something or something like that. Like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't quite Sunday right, comics. But it wasn't but, full issues like, like right. we know. It wasn't yeah. Mark Trail. You know, <laughs> it wasn't you know Dennis the Menace. Yeah, <laughs> Mark Trail or, really. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, gasoline alley. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, I remember reading Spider-Man comics and going, why am I reading three panels at a time? Yeah. This is stupid. Yeah. So, but it was not popular, uh, in 1983, but when it was published about five years later by DC, they picked it up. It picked up steam. Uh, the basic plot of V for Vendetta, the comic book is that the fascist government, which is called Norse fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. I yeah, just, that's not Aryan at all. No. <laughs> well, and I just point that out because nowadays certain white dudes are really getting into the idea of like Odin worship. Oh, wow. I didn't. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and like the I mean, start. I like, come, I, like, I like Ragnarok as much as the next guy. But. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing is they're, they're only Actually, coming. I didn't really. Oh. Well, that's an aside that we yeah, can yeah, talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but they're coming, they're coming to it now and being verbal about it now, which is weird since mm-hmm. it's such an ancient religion. <sighs> yeah. But yeah, it's taken over England in the shadow of the nuclear holocaust that just missed England, right? Okay. So in the 1980s and 70s, uh, that was a very real fear that people had. Oh, 100%. V is an anarchist, specifically an anarchist. He is cast as such. We'll get into the movie later, but uh, this sets the tale to be between two very extreme political philosophies, fascism and anarchism, literally polar opposites, okay? Um, The story is that he is essentially an avatar for anarchism, a a movement unto himself uh, who seeks to push back against the fascism that took root in England in the late 1990s because it's set, of course it's set, it's always set about a generation later, yeah. Yeah. Um, he does it through terrorism and murder. I mean, straight up terrorism and murder. He also tortures an underage sex worker into having an existential crisis. Yeah, that character, she's a sex worker in the the comic. Yeah. Okay. Um, And she comes out of it stronger for having been tortured, by the way. Yay! It's very Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually the story ends in the chaos that V's terrorism has caused with the government devouring itself to close the book. Like, there's, there's a coup at the top level, and there's a lot of assassinations. Now, it's clear that the comic meant something to, to Alan Moore. He wrote it, right? He struck at the power structure in place in Britain, um, and he has been virulently against their overreach since writing the comics, right? Um, at the time, he wrote it from a perspective of anarchist versus fascist and what that presented. And he, well, I'll give you the quote in a second. Um, and uh, 
Thatcher was facing her first real crisis at the same time that he wrote this, actually. Her wave of popularity was waning. I, I find this interesting because there's going to be a parallel across the pond. Um, she'd been in power a couple years, and there were riots in places where there hadn't been in years. According to Moore, quote, there were fascist groups, the National Front, the British National Party, who were flexing their muscles and sort of trying to make political capital out of what were fairly depressed and jobless times. Just point out that farmers' almanacs very often will <laughs> do stuff like this. Um, it seemed to me that with the kind of Reagan-Thatcher axis that existed across the Atlantic, it looked like Western society was taking somewhat a turn for the worst. And, again, I'm pulling apart from his quote for a second. Uh, Reagan and Thatcher had a famous relationship mm -hmm. in terms of, like, agreeing ideologically. What's interesting, though, is that uh, Thatcher was un once asked, I think off the record about Reagan, and uh, she said, he's a very nice man. He just has nothing between his ears. <laughs> a useful idiot, if you will. Uh, so, there, back to Moore's com uh, quote. There were ugly fascist stains starting to reassert themselves that we might have thought had been eradicated back in the 30s, but they were reasserting themselves with a different spin. They were talking less about annihilating whichever minority they happened to find disfavor with and talking more about free market forces and market choices and all of these other kinds of glib terms, which tended to have the same results as an awful lot of these kind of fascist causes back in the 1930s, but with a, more, uh, with a bit more spin put upon them the friendly face of fascism. Does this sound at all like people that got punched on camera or <laughs> at all like several other people who have uh, had their own platforms and then subsequently been deplatformed after the, they <laughs> let it all out? Yeah. So now this is 81, right, that he's talking about. And the fascination with bandits and outlaws is a very British thing, especially dashing villains. Highwaymen. Yeah, you know. it's so much higher in Britain to love that kind of stuff, right? Well, they had the original, the OG Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and this combines with uh, Alan Moore's desire to fast forward about his generation, uh, or about a generation, which is a pretty standard writer's tool, like I said, uh, and to see what would and could happen if Thatcherism was allowed to continue its logical march forward. Based on his, of course, political leanings. Right, his he point is an of artist, view, yeah. Is, is looking at this. May or may not be. Yeah. You know, it, it is a possible outcome. I don't know if I would say the logical outcome. Yeah. I would say it is a possible logical uh, sure, outcome. Yes. Sure. Is it the only one? No. Because it's, there it's, are competing yeah, it's forces. It's not out of right field and completely wacky right. to think that it could go that way. Exactly. Right. Especially now where we are. So now we've already seen similar sci-fi in the same era in England with Warhammer 40K. There's a wonderful episode about it. It's episode three. Uh, England seems to like dashing villains way more than Americans do. Um, and in fact, we import dashing villains from England. Although, from the um, old West genre, mm -hmm. there definitely is a romanticism of, of the outlaw. The outlaw, but the not the villain. The outlaw comes in to right the wrongs. He's usually going against well, the power structure. Jesse James really didn't right wrongs. and, and No, know. but people in Missouri thought he did. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very similar thing mm -hmm. where the, the, the villain in mm -hmm. Britain, there's a group of people that feels he's doing something Oh, I see good. what you're saying. I see. Just yeah. like in the in the United States, yeah. you know, the, the robber, the whatever. I mean, yeah. there's a, a similarity. It's kind of our, home, our homegrown version, but again, not as popular. Right. Yeah. Well, and in England, you get to have a full-on villain still be fascinating to the British. Like, Jack the Ripper is a really good example. Right. They loved him, you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't love Charlie Manson. 
No, but you people know? were fascinated. Fascinated, very, yes. A smaller segment, but yes. equally fascinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but and, I do think there's a difference in kind And I have there. taken the Jack the Ripper tour when I was in England a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Not much left, but still fun. Sure, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so V for Vendetta was still very much a British phenomenon as a result. So here's another quote that kind of backs that up. There's a lot of quotes I got here. Uh, quote, so it all evolved from several different sources, but it was playing into the fact that over here in England, we've got quite a good tradition of villains and sociopaths as heroes, as you were saying, like Robin Hood, Guy Fox, and all the rest of them. I'm going to stop there because Ed is going to be screaming at this podcast when he hears it. Guy Fox was not a hero in any way. He was batshit crazy. He was yep. a regressivist. Yep. But, and and yeah. also one thing I would throw into mm-hmm. what would make one of the reasons I think that they reprinted or collected V for Vendetta yeah. exactly when they did, because mm-hmm. it came out in, you said, 88? Uh, the DC reprint, yeah. Yeah. Well, two years before, Watchmen was released. Oh, yeah. And so, Watchmen was phenomenally popular and introduced Alan Moore to the American public, so I think what they did is they scrambled to find something with yeah. his name on it to yeah. put out. Okay. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Yeah. Kind of like what certain comic uh, labels do. Or, and they'll they'll like, sign a bunch or of people and when they get hits big. and becomes big. And, right. and the, in the movie they made five years ago that's been on the shelf exactly. doing nothing, that they're a third bill on. All sure. of a sudden they're the lead and they're on the front of the, the video box. and, and Leprechaun they, 3 after Friends. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> So back to Alan Moore. And in our fiction, the British children's comics, there were as many sociopathic villains who'd got their own comic strips as there were heroes. Now, he's distinguishing. Uh, Possibly more. The British have always had sympathy with a dashing villain. I would point out because Britain was the dashing villain for the world Mm, for so many generations. They did horrible things but looked good doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Scarlet Pimpernel, for example. Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, Moore's political thinking led to his art being the way it was, obviously. Quote, I, as far as I'm concerned, the two poles of politics were not left-wing or right-wing. In fact, they're just two ways of ordering an industrial society, and were fast-moving beyond the industrial societies of the 19th and 20th centuries. It seemed to me that the more absolute extremes were anarchy and fascism. And in so doing, more kind of both sides is it, I think. Because he's saying that they're two equal poles, and I'm like, no, there's one that wants to exterminate people, and there's another that will use violence to defend itself. And those are very different things. And the Spanish Civil War kind of proved that in the 30s. So I don't know how into anarchism he was at that right. time or how much study of fascism he'd done at that time. Of course, the question I would ask is mm-hmm. how extreme in the fascist is it in anarchism to the point where everything's a threat? So the violence is more widespread. Well, as um, I know, mean, I will defend myself, but you know, it's mm-hmm. going back to. Ancient Rome, which he knows very well, sure. you know, every war, even the wars we start, are wars of defense because we believe you're going to attack us, <laughs> right. so we're going to do it first, right. but we're just defending ourselves. Right. No, I see what you're saying yeah. there, yeah. Um, actual anarchists who, like, do the do their homework, essentially, uh, they're pacifists okay. who are willing to fight when attacked okay. or who are willing to fight if fascists show up. But other than that, they're like, nah, dude, you do you. Like, I'm going to be over here. If you want to help me, that's great. If you don't, that's cool. 
Like they're uh, no no centralized government. Uh, and I'm, yeah, very my, rarely. My my yeah. um, my ignorance in in, sure. in anarchists yeah. is is deep. And I <laughs> and I don't want to speak for them right. fully, but yeah, a centralized government less so. Um, the idea that so, we're all in this together is still there, though. Right. Um, no, no real like centralized infrastructure services, things like that. Yeah, and see, that's the problem with having anarchism in a post-industrial society is that you've yeah. already got the infrastructure. Now you kind of have to keep it up. Yeah, yeah, you have to maintain it, and yeah. and also, I mean, you've gotten to the point where because you're industri- you've industrialized, mm-hmm. you have role specialization, and right where you don't necessarily have people that can go off on their farm and do everything they need to do. Well, and anarchism, themselves. anarchism isn't necessarily, and again, not not going to speak too much for it, right. but um, anarchism isn't necessarily a uh, a rural frontierism either. Right, I'm just analogy. Yeah. I was using it in yeah, yeah, where yeah. where our society has evolved to the point where there are people that I can do this one task, right, and I can't do any of the other things. I can't feed myself. That's why I do this one thing to get the money to go and feed myself. Anarchism. The anarchists that I know would say, well, "What are you doing with money?" <laughs> like anarchists that I know, they're like, "No, dude, Star Trek. That's the ultimate goal of anarchism." Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating to me, and it's it's not something I'm qualified to discuss. Right, but right. there is, I get it. Like so, because capitalism is the problem. So not like pure is purist communism. I mean, communism in its final state, not that not the in between thing that the right. Soviet Union was. Right, right, right. The, the ultimate where there is no state. Yeah, yeah. Is, where we're all people it, who and people decide just to automatically get along. do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, which I think is a incredibly naive. It's utopian. Assumption. I will well, certainly say it's utopian. Right, but. Yeah, I, uh, I I guess I'm too much of a cynic. Yeah, that's fair. To believe that that people need motivation to do things. Yeah, I don't know that starvation needs to be it though. No, no, I yeah, I, I, no, I, I get that. Yeah. But also, when you get a certain point where mm-hmm. you know the 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 basic subsistence needs are met, right? You know, some people just innately in the, in their in their who they are mm-hmm. will want will work just as hard, yep. whether they get something or not. Yep. Some people won't. And we have enough machines now that take care of that could probably do a better job of and take care of, and we don't need in that some many segments. People. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, it's so. Okay. Uh, and 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 he even says the same. He says. What I was trying to do was to take these two extremes of the human political spectrum, set them against each other in a kind of little moral drama, just to see what works and what happened. I tried to be as fair about it as possible. I mean, yes, politically, I'm an anarchist. At the same time, I didn't want to stick to just moral blacks and whites. I wanted a number of fascists that I portrayed to be real rounded characters. They've got reasons for what they do. They're not necessarily cartoon Nazi. And here's where Harry and I disagree. He saw fascism creeping in and thought, yeah, but what about if we make people afraid of anarchists instead of just talking about how bad fascists are? Now, I see it creeping in, and I think, hey, let's worry about everything else later. <laughs> and he didn't do that. And to me, the bacteria account for fascism is way too high to ignore, so it's time for antibiotics. In his comic, he very much does do that, though. He well-rounds those characters. They are fascinating characters. Um... He does due diligence with them, and he kind of cartoonizes anarchism, which is interesting. And I kind of get that, you know, you'll you'll go now, harder in, against in the your comic, own side. Do they have yeah. more anarchist characters beyond V? Not really. Okay. Not really. Um, the ones who do become anarchist characters are people who are just kind of following that avatar. Okay. Um, so, interestingly, he objected strongly to the deafening of fascism uh, and fascists in the movie version too. 
or, or well, he, he objected to anything that he did being made into a movie. Yeah, well, and that was partly because he got burned by League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but also he's like, no, you took the, the teeth out of the fascists in yeah. that movie um, because it went in hard uh, against the queer community, but not at all about race. Right, and he, and he made it almost, at least in the film version, it felt to me more like a theocracy yeah. than fascism. Right. I mean, there is a nod toward Islam, too. There is. Oh, they, absolutely. They mention it twice, along, along with being queer twice, but there's nothing actually about race. Right. Um, and he, Alan Moore, didn't like them doing that in the movie because racial purity is such a tentpole of fascism. Right, they go with more unity, which could be seen as purity, of right, course. Right, But they don't come out and say that in the in the movie. Yeah. But they did make a big deal about, you know, strength through unity, unity, unity through, through faith. faith. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that, along with the, you know, Islam and homo- homophobia, yep. you know, is why I saw it as much more, like I said, as a theocracy than, yeah. right, than a fascist government, which, you know, historically haven't real been, been been real big into religious, religious. institutions because it's competition. Yeah, exactly. They are the cult of personality. Right. They are the godhead. Right. Now, I would say that one of the things I liked about the movie was that it was so generically fascist. To me, that was good. Like, it was good to do that because it generalized it so that anything, anything that, that resembled that could get plugged into that. But I, I understand the objections. No, better as far as a... Convention to use in the film. Right, and and, yeah. and now we're getting into how people consume art. Right. You know, the way it was presented in the film, do you think it made it broader and easier for people to insert their experience into mm-hmm. it and I think consume so. it? I think so. Okay. Um, at the same time, though, several of my friends objected to it as such. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and also, because they left out some of the things, mm-hmm. it closes off a dialogue or conversation right. about certain aspects. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now, he uh, he was, I still think he was willing to both sides it, uh, both extremes. Um, but he also never horseshoes, which I really like. Um, now, horseshoe philosophy is uh, anarchism and fascism are just as bad as the other. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, and it, it's because, you know. well, if, if, you, if you go far enough apart, eventually you'll meet again. Right, right that's right. the horseshoe, right? Yeah. Uh, he still sees fascism as a very viable threat. Uh, now, I'm going to show you uh, a couple panels dealing with that. Um, Do I have to read again? Yes. <laughs> uh, and then you get to scroll as well. So this okay. is the main character who in the book was called Adam Susan. In the movie was called Adam Sutler. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, the Romans invented fascism. A bundle of bound twigs was a symbol. One twig could be broken. A bundle would prevail. Fascism, strength, in unity. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and scroll. Uh, sideways. I believe in strength, I believe in unity, and if that strength, that unity of purpose demands a, a uniformity of thought, work, and deed, then so be it. I will not hear talk of freedom, I will not hear talk of individual liberty, <laughs> they are luxuries, I do not believe in luxuries, the war put paid to luxury, the mm-hmm. war put paid to freedom. Mm-hmm. This goes, which goes directly back to the conversation of what do you want, freedom or security? Right. Uh, now, what I really like is also just this imagery used. Here, V is talking to the people. This is what you saw in the movie where he's sitting down and having the fireside chat. Right. Oh, um, cut into the TV feed. Exactly. Now, this, uh, we'll get into what he says in a little bit, but if you notice who he's got up in the far, le- far left corner is uh, Hitler, Stalin, 
and Mussolini. Right. Like, just straight up, like... The top three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, despite them being wildly different uh, philosophically. You know, one of these kids is doing his own thing. Stalin's not the fascist. Right. But they're all authoritarians. Yes. And that's, you know, an easy... Easy, easy target. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to put them all in the same bucket. Right. Now, maybe I prefer my anti-fascist polemics to be more polemic. That is a fair criticism of me. I think that most people could levy. Uh, I was disappointed by Alan Moore's efforts, to be honest, um, and they missed me completely hmm. uh, in his te- in his uh, in his uh, comic book. Um, I saw fi- fascism as the BBEG, right? So it's the big bad evil guy, um, and therefore anyone seeking to disrupt that was automatically an ally. So this idea that like, well, we really want to make you question if the anarchists are right. No, he's right. Uh, you know, well, he blew up a thing with people. Yeah, in a fascist system, you got to do that sometimes. You know, you want to make an omelet. You gotta scramble some eggs. Like hmm. we bombed the shit out of Dresden, um, and and that's not good. But to me, it was like no. If if you're disrupting, seeking to disrupt fascism, you're an automatic ally of liberty. You might not be one we want to hang with after, <laughs> but you'll get us there. Yeah. Uh, regardless, See previous comment of Joseph Stalin. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, because in terrorizing a population, he's terrorizing a population that has become complicit in the disappearance and violence toward large swaths of that population. So the, the um, you know, these, these people never did anything against anyone. Yeah, but they absolutely co-signed silently by their complicity the violence against people who were then marginalized and then nobody thought about them. Um, it, I just finished watching Man in the High Tower. Um, High Castle. High Castle, that. Um, and I don't want to give spoilers because it's, it's a streaming service. Still so. relatively recent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is a wonderful discussion that was had between uh, two of the female characters in it about whether or not uh, they even paid attention to what happened and why they didn't. It was really, that to me got to the moral crux of what it means to live in a society that is built on that without acknowledging that. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm an historian and I'm living in America and I lived in the South for a while and, 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 and. Right. But, so, another quote by him. Uh, and the central question is this. Is, is this guy right or is he mad? What do you, the reader, think about this? What struck me, which struck me as properly anarchist solution. I didn't want to tell the people what to think. I just wanted to tell the people to think and to consider some of these admittedly extreme little elements which nevertheless do recur fairly regularly throughout human history. I was very pleased with how it came together, and it was a book that was very, very close to my heart. But I also would argue as a creator Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm not telling you what to think. Yeah, but conscious or unconscious, you you are framing it in a certain way, and you are presenting your argument. Mm -hmm. And not that he was being deceptive in anything in right. way, I think as a creator you can't help but present your point of view absolutely you know I so mean, you're saying that he wrote an accidental anecdote or an accidental uh, allegory because that's that's what we came to with Tolkien was that it, oh, and really? it's a kind of an overriding theme in this show is that um, arthurial intent doesn't mean shit because you did it even if you didn't mean to do it like any any piece of art is a snapshot of the time yeah. that it was created in. Absolutely, and I, so I, I, no, Tolkien created an allegory that. without meaning to, and right. he he deliberately set out to not create an allegory. He created an allegory, well, and like what you've been talking about right yeah. now with Watchmen, when it was created versus today, right? You know, that piece of work is a static 
creation of art yeah. that means a completely different, not completely, but it means, it means different things today than it did a long time ago. Yeah, well, because when it was first created, it was about the Cold War mm-hmm. and nuclear threat. I mean, the the the, the doom clock, the right. doomsday yeah. clock, yeah, all that. I mean, it was the Afghanistan That's thing. It was a theme that more likes, right, right, <laughs> the clock. Well, because he was, and that was yeah. the water he was swimming in, right. Um, and whereas now it's been updated to be about race relations, right, which is its own doomsday clock. So yes, I think so. Um, yeah. the difference there is that uh, the property is being updated. It's being altered. Yeah. It's being changed. It's being. I'm gonna borrow the term from Turner. Colorized on some level, um, but uh, I think that that's okay because it's keeping the same tone. And and I would argue that and it's changed media. Authorial intent mm-hmm. does matter as far as retroactively condemning the author. Oh, okay. Yeah. Be- because because you have to look you at the time in which they have no idea yeah. what the fallout will be okay you know a generation from now they mm-hmm. can look at it completely differently yeah. and you know go oh what an asshole that guy is i mean yeah. you know, if you look at the american civil war mm-hmm. and the emancipation proclamation the vast majority of people that supported it by today's standards would be horrific racists yeah but yet they voted to free the slaves that's true you know so i think that Context, time of origin, and intent matter to a degree. Mm-hmm. But I think that art lives beyond the creator and mm-hmm. becomes and, and almost always becomes something completely unintended. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. I think it's okay to go back and kind of evaluate the times in which they live. Sure. And they are a, I don't want to overuse the word avatar, but they are an, they're emblematic of the time in which they lived. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And criticizing it on that level, I think, is okay. Right. Um, Recognizing, though, that, for instance, um, John Brown was probably the only white guy in America who saw himself as an equal to black people at that time in the 1850s. Quite possibly. And and he was uh, just, I mean, dragged for years, for generations, until recently he's been really updated. Um, I think that's a good thing that we're capable of doing that as historians and as people who consume art. I, I think it's terrible that at that time, literally the only guy who thought he was equal to people who had different skin color than him was the one willing to take up a broadsword to go and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, good on him, bad on the rest of them. Right, and I'm sure so. I, I, I know a limited amount about John Brown, mm-hmm. but I would assume that if we dug into his life, there probably would be things about him by today's standards that would that would, mm-hmm. would you know be oh, condemned. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? And yeah. Which, which is exactly my point that it's fine to look at something, and I agree. You look mm-hmm. at it in the context of when it was created or when the person lived, with the understanding that yes, in this time period, yeah. this person was progressive for their time, not by our standard. Right. You know, we 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 don't agree with a lot of the other things they did, but this one thing, it was a huge accomplishment in that time yes. for them to do this thing. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you there. I mean um so all this terror that V's committing, he's blowing up buildings, he's assassinating key party members. Um again, I'm talking only about the comic. This is in the backdrop of something called the Troubles. This is a fight in Ireland to get the British out of Northern Ireland. Okay, so they actually used mm-hmm. that. Okay, because when you said the Troubles, I'm like, oh, like Ireland. No, that literally he yeah, is talking I, about Northern Ireland. Well, he's not he, saying he, that. It's, did it's he not create called, something that wasn't that, that he called the Troubles? No, no. What I'm saying, though, is that he's creating art at the time that the Troubles are happening. Okay. 
So, of course, blowing up buildings. Yeah, sure. Assassinating key party members. Everything going on in Belfast. Are, exactly. Those yeah. are tools that his character can use because that's what's going on. Um, just like in every uh, Marvel and Avengers movie, there's a 9-11 moment. Why? Because 9-11 is a part of our social fabric now, right? Uh, yeah. Buildings topple. Shit falls. It, stuff it's, like that. It's almost, you could argue it's almost equivalent to like a hack joke. Yeah. Is, is, or, or, or the cheap pop. Yep. Because you bring it cheap back pop. to, to, to wrestling. Yeah. You know, you know it's an easy emotional yep. cord to strike. Exactly. Yeah. Or uh, also in wrestling, something called cheap heat. So where a bad guy needs to get the audience to boo him. Oh. So there's ways to do that. You can fight a certain way and then you get the audience Automa- over. Automatically. Right. Yeah. Or you can just spit on the good guy. Okay. And then everybody's, and, and that's cheap heat. Right. That's, that's, what are you doing? You have no imagination. Right. But yeah, that's, that's your hack joke. Yeah. So uh, the problem was not everyone wanted the British out of Northern Ireland. Um, it was an ethno-religious struggle, which, again, I'm going to paint with broad brushes here because it saves time. But uh, it had a lot to do with identity in Ireland and the long-time oppression by the British on Ireland. Okay? A friend of mine was hitchhiking through Europe at the time because that's the thing you used to get to do. <laughs> um, and he, he went to a bar somewhere in Ireland. I don't remember where. And the, the, I'm going to do my, my, my best, worst. Republic of Ireland? Uh, Could have been. Okay. I don't know. Not, not Northern? In, I'm not sure. Okay. But I know that uh, he might have actually said Belfast. Ooh. Yeah. So he shows up in a bar and somebody asks him, are you, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And he says, I'm an atheist. They're like, well, that's fine. But are you a Catholic atheist <laughs> or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> and that shit mattered. Right? Oh, absolutely. So the IRA set off a bomb kill, killing a famed admiral and a relative of the royal family, Lord Mountbatten, in 1979. Eighteen British paratroopers were killed by remote detonated car bombs, or not car bombs, but r- remotely detonated bombs on the same day. Um, that was, I believe, the discotheque mm-hmm. uh, bombing. In 1981, the Irish hunger strikes took place. Uh Ten Irish prisoners went on hunger strike. Bobby Sands was the first one to Mm. die. He's the one that makes all the papers. Um, Afterwards, Libya sent them aid. Oh, that's right. Because Libya was pissed at Thatcher for helping Reagan bomb Gaddafi's country. Right? Right. Gaddafi was pissed. And kind of understandably so, it killed his kid. Kid, right. So, and yeah. Wait, going to make an omelet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, see, the difference, though, between anarchist <laughs> violence and fascist violence, anarchist violence is coming from underneath. Yeah, but it's much more organized. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Those bombs will drop on time. Right. So, also in 1981, Reagan gets shot by John Hinckley. Hmm. That's why we don't know John Hinckley's middle name, because he didn't succeed. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Hadn't thought that one through, but I see Fun. where you're going. <laughs> right, right, you're right. I don't know his middle name, and every single, everybody yeah. else, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, at least in the 1900s. In the right. 1800s, Charles Gateau. Well, no, they, I guess it kind of bounced back and forth. Yeah. But anyway, it, it, John Hinckley was trying to impress Jodie Foster because he'd seen her in performance in Taxi, Taxi Driver. Driver a few years prior, and she was 13 at the time, and now she's 17, and he's super obsessed with impressing her. Um, quote, I'm quoting John Hinckley, Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. You spoke on the phone? 
Yeah. It was a different time. Uh, yeah, well, I think he called her and she's like, this is creepy as fuck, don't. Or that there was a tracing that happened. I, right. I don't remember, but... Um, the ingenuity of stalkers back then. Yeah. I don't... Uh, just the, the backhand compliment. Yeah, yeah. Because it, pre-internet to find out those things about someone, yeah. that takes dedication. Yeah. Well, you know, when our would-be assassins do it, they're creepy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, when the Irish do it, there's a political reason. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in their mind, it's, mm-hmm. it's not terrorism. They're... They're, they're freedom They're fighters. fighting a war. Yep. You know, because they have brigades and they have commanders and, I mean, they it's have... It's literally a, a war It's a military them. structure. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're fighting a military structure. Yeah. Uh, but soon after his trial, John Hinckley wrote that the shooting was, quote, the greatest love offering in the history of the world. And he was dis- disappointed that Jodie Foster didn't reciprocate his love. Wow. I get why people rail quickly against the nice guy motif. Oh, no, I, I yeah. do. You know? uh, no, I do too. I, yeah. I again, I was I was naive in yeah. my position because yeah. again, not the the pool I swam in. Right. And once someone pointed out to me, I was like, Oh yeah, right. okay, yeah. I see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. And I've I see it more. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of like well, when... it, the the mm-hmm. the dick knife guy has become the incel. Yes. I there was um, a comedian. I want to say it was Jackie O'Neill. Um, but it was somebody. He said that you know what? It's it's the world has gotten so topsy turvy that nerds are the dangerous ones and the jocks are actually the good ones because the jocks are the ones taking a knee or going out there and criticizing the government or raising their fist at the Olympics and the nerds are the ones that are shooting up schools and churches and shit like that. And it's in so uncomfortable. Yeah, okay. well, yeah. Yeah, 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 but it's yeah. so uncomfortably true in those broad strokes. Where I'm like, ah, well, it, shit, nerds. What are you well, doing? It's also one of those things where the also, oppressed yeah. become the oppressor, right? You know, because culturally, yeah, the the nerds More are, nerds are yeah. in the ascendancy. True, and nerd culture is the dominant culture. Yep, and you know the, the nerds have the wealth, right? And with wealth comes power. Yeah, and. And, and yet they still the, have the, that shadow well, of... Well, the drive of, I want some payback. Right. Which which is always a, a concern huh. when an oppressed party gets in, gets in a position of power. There's that risk of, you know, I don't necessarily want equal, but to me equal is, you know, equal time. You know, I was shit on for a while. Right. Equality is you being shit on for a while right. until I decide that the debt's been paid. Right. And where no, and, I get and no that one agrees as, to that. And, well, you know, no yeah. one can come to an agreement on that. Yeah, I would point out, though, the only times that I've actually seen that happen are when uh, it was the Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, or you're seeing... Yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not saying it premise. happens with any yeah. regularity. No, no. But I'm it, just saying that... You know, it's almost like a projected fear. Like, yeah. it seems to be only white folk who are afraid of that happening. Well, it, well, also, it's because white folks have been the ones in power. Right. You know, but but, but like I said, you know, yeah. the, the, to a small degree, mm-hmm. I think you could make the argument that we're seeing that with the quote-unquote nerd or tech or whatever right. culture is. The incel they culture. They do have yeah. a lot of... A lot more power than they did, mm-hmm. you know, thirty years ago. Yeah, you know, having grown up and been a nerd mm-hmm. of, of a certain age. Sure, sure. You know, um, to this day, you know, mm-hmm. I still people tell me, you know, as a single guy going to, you know, trying to meet people, oh, don't tell them you're into comic books. Oh you Jesus! Know, because yeah. that generation is still, you know, right, my generation right. and older is still of the mind of that's a negative thing. Right. Whereas, like, have you seen the billions of dollars that comic books have made for people right. now? Yeah. Right. You know, so, but yeah, you're yeah. right. And, and you see things like the, you know, inside of Google where they're saying, you know, 
bad things or, you know, all kinds of, you know, men behaving badly. Yep. You know. Oh, absolutely. And that's supposed to be, you know, you know, the whole, we've been, you know, picked on and, and, you know, now we're not picked on anymore. Yay. But, you know, you just pick somebody else to pick on. Yeah. Yeah. You you pulled the ladder up after you. Right. And then you hit people with it. Like, you're a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the the unfortunate. That's where my cynical, my cynicism about human nature comes into play. I could get that. Where, I can see that. You know, again, you know, you you lacked power for a long time, and you got a little bit, and you know, you kind of got drunk on the the feel. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand that concern. I understand that fear. I just look at it historically, and it's like right. Practically, didn't happen, will right? it happen? Yeah. 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 It, it, practically, no. Yeah. So, and I, and I don't know that. It, I don't think it would happen. Um, Societal, society wide, no. or anything like that. Yeah, history has shown there, that it has. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be isolated instances. instances exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Reagan, incidentally, uh, when he got shot, he got hit by sheer dumb luck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because Hinckley would have missed entirely, um, except for there was this one Secret Service agent who had perfect timing. He, he grabbed Reagan and rushed him into the limo like you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And one of the bullets, uh, <laughs> this guy was so on it and his speed and his assiduousness um put reagan right in the path of the only bullet that had a chance of hitting reagan um everything else hit other yeah it it hit jim brady there was a secret serviceman got caught in the gut and there were a bunch of shots that went flying into the limo and the limo was bulletproof but the the so much so that the bullet bounced off the limo door and tore into the president's chest so if the Secret Service had not done their job, Reagan would have been fine. And here's where it gets really weird. Reagan gets a lot of sympathy. And people were already not liking him after he'd gotten elected. And he was like looking at a long three years, right? Um, he charmed the shit out of everyone at the hospital. Oh, yeah. The joke about the surgeon, are you a Democrat? Yeah, I, yeah. Hope, I sure hope some of you are Republicans. Right. Um, that, and that's one thing he absolutely knew how to do. Charming motherfucker. Absolutely. Um, which, which he used that charmingness to silence students who were protesting against him that he was fucking over. Like there's, I'm, I'm not a fan of this man. <laughs> um, but, uh, he basically locked in his second term alongside his tougher new image as a result of this too. He survived the bullet. Man. Right. He's yeah. the cowboy. He took a he bullet for the country. Exactly. Right. So in August, when he enforced a law that nobody thought he would against the air traffic controllers in their strike, everyone was on board with him busting that union. He broke that union, and, and like he's not the first one to do any union breaking, but he really cranked it up to the point where unions have been declining ever since then. Uh, all of this because he survived being shot and was charming. Now, 1982... The discotheque bombing at the drop in well killed 11 British uh, soldiers and six civilians. So that's, I mixed that up with the 81. In 1984, Thatcher herself escaped an assassination by sheer dumb luck. <laughs> uh, the next day, she was a fucking badass. She really was. Um, and she spoke as scheduled, basically telling the, the IRA, come at me. I'm here. Right? Um, this made her wildly popular. And it was a bombing, I believe. Uh, that that had went awry, made her wildly popular after facing a lot of trouble in her initial election and halfway through a coal miner's strike, she got a lot of support due to how badass she looked. Mm -hmm. So this is the backdrop of really fucking scary violence that these right-wing libertarian-branded populist crypto-fascists end up gaining popular support and therefore more power in, too. I'm not saying you should kill these leaders at all. They were duly elected individuals... They get, they get to be in charge 
Right. You, you need to do a better job of, of that. who you pick. But yeah. if you're going to shoot at them, you fucking well better hit them. Because <laughs> if you don't, they're going to use that and they're going to ascend and break all the unions, apparently. Because uh, that's what Thatcher did and that's what Reagan did. Um, in V for Vendetta, they're already in charge. Okay, And their popularity isn't any longer a question because they have all the authority. They have the power. Now, the comic book has an excellent answer to this, really. Uh, um, v has a fireside chat of sorts, and I'm going to show you that picture again, on the national news channel, which can't get shut off because fascism. Um, and in it, he says the following things. Okay, And uh, I'm going to show you the pictures. Which is great for our listening audience. Yes, it's a visual <laughs> medium. Right. Okay, uh, okay, we're back to the. I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and read it to you though. Okay, so but as you can see, you've got him with the three dictators and people watching along at home, mm -hmm. and then he is continuing to talk, and as people are storming the building, right? Uh, and he keeps talking as they're storming the building. Keeps talking. There's still people watching this on the TV, uh, and yeah, and that's where we will stop on, on that. Now, here's what the text all says. Um, and it's, and it's no good blaming the drop in work. He does this as a, uh, we're having your yearly review. Okay. Okay. And so he carries on this metaphor of talking to you as though you are a worker and he is your supervisor. He says, and it's no good blaming the drop in work standards upon bad management either, though to be sure the management has been very bad. In fact, let us not mince words. The management is terrible. We've had a string of embezzlers, frauds, liars, and lunatics making a string of catastrophic decisions. This is plain fact. But who elected them? It was you. You who appointed those people, uh, these people. You who gave them the power to make your decisions for you. And while I'll admit that anyone can make a mistake once, to go on making the same lethal errors century after century seems to me nothing short of deliberate. This is the anarchist in him. Uh, you have encouraged these malicious incompetents who have made your working life a shambles. You have accepted without question their senseless orders. You have allowed them to fill your workspace with dangerous and unproven machines. You could have stopped them. All you had to say was no. You have no spine. You have no pride. You are no longer an asset to the company. And then the action picks up and, and so on. That's Alan Moore talking to Britain. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. He is pissed. Yeah, that is definitely not him saying, I'm not telling you what to think. No. Yeah. I'm just saying think. Yeah. That's, I call bullshit on yep. that because he's absolutely telling them what to yep. think. And that, that part I liked, you know, <laughs> because he's, tell, he's, he's, he's just putting it out there, right? But he's pissed at England because he sees the election of Thatcher as the first step toward totalitarianism. And did you know that, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you saw the recent news story, he actually voted. Yes. For the first time in, I don't know, decades. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. have that article, actually. That's, yeah. that's part of the epilogue. Oh, okay. Yeah, so but... Didn't I, mean to jump ahead. No, 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 <laughs> I don't mind. Um, and now here's his strongest case against them, right? He doesn't both sides it here. He calls it out. And you remember from the beginning, naivete can be detected in my supposition that it would take something as melodramatic as a near miss. Nuclear conflict to nudge England toward fascism is 1988 now, right? Margaret Thatcher is entering her third term of office and talking confidently of an unbroken conservative leadership well into the next century. The tabloid press are circulating the idea of concentration camps for persons with AIDS. This should sound familiar because I read it earlier. Uh, the new riot police wear black visors, as do their horses, and their vans have rotating video cameras mounted on top, which you saw in the movie. Mm -hmm. The government has expressed a desire to eradicate homosexuality. 
even as an abstract concept, and one can only speculate as to which minority will be the next legislated against. I'm thinking of taking my family and getting out of this country soon. It's cold and it's mean-spirited, and I don't like it here anymore. That's a nice version of what he said in his, te- in his comic book half a decade earlier, which I just read to you. And that's why I put them right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, I talked about a sex worker who's underage that V tortures into an existential crisis, one that ultimately uh, frees her to choose freedom. Uh, that's all the metaphor for what anarchism has to do to England to thoroughly purge itself of fascism. Anything else would be inauthentic and allow it to creep back in. Like I said, you've got to take your antibiotics for the full course. Um, and yet again, in a more polite and smartly dressed tone, just like Margaret Thatcher. She's more polite, smartly dressed fascism, but she's fascism nonetheless, or she's the first step toward it in Moore's eyes. Um, or someone else with a nice suit and tie and easy smile who lets you think that other people are the problem. Uh, no, the only solution is an anguishing, abandoned, and despairing authentic choice. True existentialism will lead you to anarchism. The British electorate must suffer because they brought this on themselves. They must make the choice for themselves, which he says, you should have said no. And they must realize that with both choices, whether you say no or whether you say yes, will come pain. And only then can they, the electorate, the British electorate, truly choose what's best for them. There's your anarchism. And with that opportunity comes a huge risk. But at least it won't be due to momentum or inertia, which are two opposing things. And let me know when we get to the film portion of things because I... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's My question in the yeah. comic... Mm-hmm. Because talking about, you know, the electorate has to suffer. Yep. Does he make them suffer in the comic? Because he doesn't and remotely in right. the film. He blows up he, basically he, he, empty buildings. Yeah, he, he targets institutions of government. Right. And does nothing else. Right. And now you could argue that there were some innocent people in the buildings or whatever, but he doesn't. I would say that they're, by being in there, they're complicit with the system. Well, but, but yeah. But, but either way, yeah. he doesn't. He's target not, the population. He right. doesn't. He He's doesn't, not terrorizing the population. He doesn't condemn them in right. his speech in the in the film version, nearly to the degree that You're he does right. in the comic. He's much he more empathetic. He's he's much more. I understand. I understand. After you made this mistake, and I'm right. trying to show you the way. In, right. in, it's more paternalistic. And come along with me, and next year we're going to see something big. Right. Yeah. He, so he's not. He, yeah. He's not, he doesn't drop the hammer on him. It's true. He doesn't in the film. Right. You know. So it's a very different approach. Yes. And uh, can you see why Moore didn't like it? Yeah. Because he's like, you took the thing I liked and you, you know, sanitized right. it. But also larger than that, I yeah. mean, I'm sure that wasn't an argument of his, but he is well on record of he doesn't like any of his work being adapted to another medium. Right. Because he created it for that medium, it should stay forever in that medium, and, you know, keep your hands off, which is why he didn't work for DC for That's decades. That's true. That's true. But he's also happy to take their money. No, he didn't take the money from not for oh, not for the from, comics he did. Yeah, yeah. But for the films, and you know, he his name not, was off of it, and he didn't yeah. take money. And I mean, he he he, he I, said he put, put money that money toward was. Lloyd. Yeah. yeah, he did after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So when it was political polemics, yes, you're right. Okay. Prior to that, he was happy to take the money when it shifted, mm-hmm. which is fine. He gets to man. That's his. Oh no, his, it's, it's his yeah. thing. He can take it or not. Yeah, but very 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 different. Um, mm-hmm tone in the yeah. film yeah you know? now i think that in the 80s it, this was a clearly overblown thing like dude what an alarmist right, right. and also in the film mm-hmm. 
the uh, character of Evie, who they, mm-hmm. they age up from being a minor. Right. Because they wanted, I, I don't know if it was solely because that was a distasteful thing to have in the film. Yeah. Or <laughs> if it was more because, and I don't know if they do this in the comic, but they make the V and Evie fall in love. In, no, they in do the it film. in the comic as well. Okay. So yeah. a, a little bit of a Lolita thing. A bit, but okay. it's also the early 1980s where like... Uh, a a seventeen year old marrying a man our age is not beyond the pale. It's not horrific. It's not like right. it's not like you're going after small children. Or right. Right. It was right. that borderline. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. gross. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so you're right. There is that aspect of it too. Um, and also, yeah, he brutalizes her. Mm-hmm. In, in my opinion, from the film perspective, mm-hmm. for no other reason than you might out me. Yep. I need to know if you will or not. Right. So I'm going to do horrific things to you to protect my ideology and, and my goal. That's so interesting because I don't, I didn't Which see. Which is exactly how I saw it. I didn't see it like that at he, all. He never projected, right. this is for your own good. This is going to, you know, after the fact. I was going to say, after the fact. After the exactly fact, is, now things, you're yeah. free. Now you're right. this and that. But there was nothing leading up to that. And I would argue that if she had not been in a position where she might. Mm-hmm. You know the whole thing, the scene with the um, the bishop, yeah. where she admits that she tried to right, turn him right, in, right. and she apologizes to him, and blah 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 blah. Had that not happened, I don't think he ever would have put her through that. Oh, I see. Okay. Be- so I kind of call bullshit that that you need to suffer to get to that point to make this decision. Because right. why didn't he do that when he first grabbed her? If if that was what needed to happen to her, well, I he, would argue okay. that the timing of which was solely because. She was a threat to his plan, okay. and he needed to know if she would break and right. turn him in so he could okay. decide what he would or wouldn't do with her. Okay. See, I, I, I read that a little different, but when we get to the film, we'll, t- we'll talk yeah. about that. So, essentially, there's your comic book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the 80s, like I said, it's, it's clearly overblown, right? But looking back at it, it really wasn't that overblown considering what's going on now. There were some very painful choices that England didn't make. And as such, a lot of people died. Again, you know, you infected a blood supply. Mm-hmm. A lot of people lost their rights. And when the Labor Party took back over in 1977, so from 79 to 77. Okay, hang on. Cons- yeah. 79 to 87, you mean? No, se- 97. Okay, you said 79. Oh, I'm sorry. You said 79 yeah, yeah. to 77, and I yeah. was confused. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I totally understand why. No, the Labor Party takes back over in, in 1997. Okay. So that's almost a generation under conservatism. It was led by Tony Blair, which is essentially the British Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. So not really a liberal, a centrist with mild liberal, liberal leanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the parallels across the pond are stunning. It's as though it's just more localized as a phenomenon. Regardless, both the Democrats in the U.S. in 92, right, mm-hmm. uh, 93, and the Labor Party in the U.K. were a way more conservative version of themselves than they had been before the other people had beaten them, before mm-hmm. Reagan okay. and before Thatcher. They're not pro-union anymore. They accept the union's help because who the hell the union's going to turn to? Right. Uh, they're certainly not pro minority. The Clintons talked about super predators. He did the three strikes and you're out. He did the welfare quote reform uh, and stuff like that, making life harder for poor people and people of color to satisfy his more conservative base. Tony Blair did very similar things. Um, see if this sounds like anyone we grew up under, you and me. Okay. Quote. 
Critics and admirers tend to agree that Blair's electoral success was based on his ability to occupy the center ground and appeal to voters across the political spectrum to the extent that he has been fundamentally at odds with traditional Labor Party values. Some left-wing critics argued that Blair oversaw the final stage of a long-term shift of the Labor Party to the right. Does that sound like a president that you were in college under and I was a, a middle schooler under? Yeah, you could argue that. Yeah. That's Clintonian. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know... They're answering to the politics of their time. Right. They're answering to a... I mean, again, normally the United States likes to turn the pillow over every eight years, but under Reagan slash Bush, it was mm-hmm. a 12-year turnover. Right. And it would have been a, a 16-year turnover had Ross Perot not fucked it up for him. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Which I mean, it's very so, interesting to see what... Um, what a second Bush, Bush term one would have yeah. looked like, and what that would have meant for the subsequent election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Uh, but uh, how to put? Um, you know, had Clinton won and lost, would he run again? Right. You know, and then then the dominoes fall because if he's not elected, okay, Hillary doesn't get her prominence. Right. She which means becomes Secretary of State. And Bush and, two and all of yeah. that doesn't. You know. Yeah. Which yeah. means Bush two definitely doesn't get elected because that was very much a reaction to Hillary Clinton. And the Clintons, right. he you may, know. Not, may not even run, right. you know. So yeah, there's a lot of what if. Yeah, you know, I like alternative history, so that's oh, a very too. interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. But I would I'd point out that both of these men, Blair and Clinton, are a much more conservative recasting, a reskinning of the Labor and the Democratic Party of the mm-hmm. left party, mm-hmm. the party of the left, which it ceased to be because the the pendulum had been yanked so far to the right. By their predecessors. Right, but I, I, I would argue that the party was still a party left, it's not as far left as it had been in the past. It wasn't, it wasn't a party of the right by any stretch of the I would say it's a party of the center at the best by that point. And... As a centrist, well, you dig that. Not, yeah. not, a, not a horrible thing <laughs> from where I'm sitting. Right, uh, <laughs> right. Whereas I'm looking at like... As yeah, a, I, as you see it as a failure. Uh, I don't see it as a failure, I see it as a shift. Yeah. Um, I oh, see it as, as clearly. Yeah, yeah, I acknowledge it's yeah. a shift. For so sure. that the far left has become, you know, like where if 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 Eisenhower becomes a socialist, you gone pretty far right. <laughs> um, so England didn't despair, they didn't anguish, and they didn't truly suffer any abandonment. They just shifted to the left a little. Mm-hmm. The center had shifted to the right. There's a new paradigm, one that takes those marginalized people for granted and ignores their needs. That's basically the Democrats. That's basically the Labor Party. Moore's writing seemed overblown because society ignored the temperature in the room rising and just adapted to its new heat. So they're lobsters. Yeah. But Moore wished they had. Okay. Uh, and so here, let me show you a picture of the police officer at the camp um, seeing the ghosts. Say something so that we so, don't yeah. <laughs> So the through line in, uh-huh. the, in the comic of him going back and assassinating... You said he was assassinating members of, of the party. Was yes. In the comic, was it just because they were members of the party? Or was it because of that subplot in the film of they were the ones at the camp that made him? Oh, no. It's still that subplot. That's still That's there? That's still there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So here you have the police officer, the head... Um, investigator mm-hmm. uh, and he got he goes back to the camp and he takes LSD because it's the 80s and that's what you do um, okay. but these people that he's seeing are all ghosts oh okay and he says uh, oh oh look look they're all smiling they're all happy god it's been so long 
I'd forgotten how I'd forgotten how rich the color of your skin was. A thousand special blends of coffee. The girls I saw hugging each other in the demonstrations, and the men so gentle, so softly spoken. You look at who's in this picture, and it's people of color. Mm-hmm. It's families of color. Okay, these are the people in the camp where he goes. Right. My friends, there at the carnival at the gay pride marches, we treated you so badly. All the hateful things we, pr- uh, we printed, did, and said. But please, please don't despise us. We were stupid. We were kids. We didn't know. And then they leave him, and he's having a bad trip. And that is the chief inspector? Yes. Okay. Uh, not Creedy, but um, I forget his name. Right. I'm trying to pull up the... Real quick, give me the actor. Oh, Stephen Ray, please. Yes, Finch. Finch, yes. Okay, okay. So, inter- interesting. So, um, now, when went mm-hmm. to the camp, is that... He went to the camp was... for the same reason. So, okay. what they did in writing, this was done on panel. Okay. Okay? Now, this is after V gets shot. Okay. And please read for me what uh, is being said. This country is not saved. Do not think that. But all its old beliefs have come to rubble, and from rubble we may build. That is their task to rule themselves, their lives, and loves, and land. Anarchy wears two faces, both creator and destroyer. Thus destroyers topple empires, make a canvas of clean rubble, where creators can, then can build a better world. Rubble, once achieved, makes further ruins, makes further ruins means irrelevant? Mm-hmm. Okay. And at last I know, I know who I must be. And that's Evie putting on the mask. All of us can become anarchists. That's, that's right. anarchism, right? right? And so here she is looking in the mirror and then taking on the smile. Um, and that's where we will stop there. So okay. I, would, uh, I would just say England prevails. <laughs> so they didn't have to do the work. Right. But I, I... And they didn't get to rubble. And as a result, they never paid for their sins, so they could ignore their sins, so they couldn't make whole what they had done wrong to so many people. Right. But I do take issue with the assumption Mm -hmm. that destruction, not that destruction of certain institutions might be necessary at some point, Mm -hmm. but the assumption that something better will be built... Mm-hmm. I think is has a certain naivete, naivete sure. in itself. I, I would counter with this. I'm going to push back with this. Um, I get that. But we've seen what's been built on what this is, and it's been genocide. It's worth a shot. Oh, no, I, I get so, the, yeah. You know, and, and now we're, yeah. we're, we're moving into something that is near and dear to my heart, which is mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic yes. entertainment. Yes. Because one of the things I find most interesting is mm-hmm. when you take away the, the nice security blanket of, yep. of, of civilization, yep. how do people react? Yes. And that's even more so, you know, for example, the book that I'm writing, um, I describe it as Game of Thrones meets Walking Dead, but with no dragons and no zombies. Okay. So me- just the me- human elements. Meaning... It's just people, right? Because that was the aspect that I always found fascinating. Mm-hmm. Is that when you take away civilization, you know, in my estimation, people usually react broadly in one of three ways. Yep. They immediately try to rebuild what they lost. Right. They see it as an opportunity to build something different, mm-hmm. hopefully better, or they can't handle the collapse and they just lose their shit and be, then they become you know predators, pre- you know, roam, yeah. roaming the, the wastelands. Yep. You know, and for the most part, that's kind of where they end up. 
and you know, which is why I find you know that genre so interesting. Sure. So, which what kind of leads into Absolutely. some of the themes of you know I said tear down the establishment. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So unfortunately, that's the end of the comic. Is it's kind of like it's like you know, romantic this, comedies it, where it, it, it ends never, with them falling it, in love. Also, or, or it's a this is potentially never ending. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's just know, that swinging well, back and forth. Right. Because he says you have a choice. Yeah. It's an existential choice. Right. right. And, and the qu- question is, yeah. if they make that choice and they tear that down, mm-hmm. does that mean that, that eventually the pendulum will swing and you'll have to tear it all down again? Yeah. I, I think so. I think there is a kind of uh, shivistic aspect to it. An- a, inevitability. A, yeah. Well, and also it just kind of goes back to uh, the the Hindu pantheon of you, you have a cycle mm-hmm. of creation and destruction. Um, I would say that this is the natural state or the natural, how to put, bubbling up that happens that's gross, that if you don't deal with it, you're fucked, that happens in a democracy. Oh, I, I no, absolutely. There's are and that's, a lot of ugly aspects of a democracy yep. just because, again, again, you know, freedom versus security. Mm-hmm. You can have very orderly you know, go back to, you know, in Italy, the trains ran on time. So say you know, Singapore, very orderly. Right. And not very free. And, it, and it's possible to also provide for people's basic subsistence yep. needs, yep. you know, in a horrific society yep. from a, a control standpoint. Yeah. You know, yeah. in fact, it's easier to in provide always. Yeah. for people, yeah. you know, if, if you control everything and decide what people are going to get and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Oh, yeah. You know, but you throw, like I said, many times, in theory, communism isn't necessarily a bad idea, but, but you it, put people in, into it, right. and it gets all screwed up. Okay. I don't disagree with you. And I'll, I'll even give you the same thing for anarchism, in theory, but then you put people in, and it can get all screwed up. I'm going to say can, because yeah. I've, I've got all the friends who've, you know, kind right. of argued in my ear. In theory, fascism is always bad. <laughs> I, I wouldn't disagree with right. you. So, having said that... But yes, but, tear it all down. Yeah. But, no, <laughs> because look what look but, what grew out of it. Right. Yes, tear it all down. You're, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to lop off that leg. Learn to walk. Right. Um, you know, we'll we'll build you, build you a nice prosthetic. Right. But so I would say that when people go the both sides route, when they say, well, they're like Alan Moore did, and I don't agree with him. Well, they're both equals. No, no, they're not. Right. Because this one has the potential to go one go bad. This one will, and it's proven as such. Right. Because yeah. an, inher- an inherent part of the system. Is oppression and oppression genocide. Of, of, of certain groups yep. and, and things like that yep. and and yep. no no I can, I can see that because if there was a, a a brand of or flavor of of fascism that didn't have that you know if fascism came in a variety of, of styles right. and, and intensities sure. you could argue that you know kind of like the whole uh, democratic socialist thing yes you yes know, so there's a variety of socialisms right out there. some right. are more you know you know more government heavy than others sure. and you you pick and choose aspects of yeah, the yeah, idea. yeah so by its definition socialism is not one thing right right fascism is Whereas, yeah yeah I see where I see where it come from. So uh, at this point, uh, we're gonna we're gonna stop here, and in the next episode, we'll talk about the movie. Okay. Uh, so as as usual, I get very text heavy, and then <laughs> finally get to the thing I'm talking about in the second episode. So okay. uh, I'll ask you what I've always asked: Ed. What have you gleaned? Um, I have gleaned that um, my point of view of the of the content based solely on the film is very different, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I 
obviously know a little bit more about history, the history of that period, which I didn't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I need to digest it. Sure. Because um, it's a lot. It, it, it is. It is a lot. And I it tend is, to feed you water with a fire hose. It's very different from, like I said, you know, I came in here prepared to speak, talk about the, the film yeah. and not knowing just how much the two diverged. Yeah. Sort of how how yeah. far it went from the, the source material. So, no, I think it's interesting. I do, I, I, again, my, my point of view and my cynicism on human nature, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't always, I understand the motivation of this is bad and the, the whole, almost anything is better than this right. point of view right. of that. And I, I totally get that. Sure. You know, but sometimes the, the chaos or anarchy in the way that it is popularly used yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nowadays that would follow that tear down of the structure, at mm-hmm. least for a short term, could be worse. Yeah, no, I, I get that. The institutions. I get that because, I mean, you know, Edmund Burke and, and you know, Maximilian Robespierre and, like, you know, you get that swing. Right. And, the, and you lose social cohesion and it goes right. real bad real it, quick. It's, it's like, yeah. um, I forget the, it's a, the German word when um, the, the young Amish folks go out into the world for a while. Rumspringer. There you go. Yeah. You know, you get a little bit of that of, yeah. or, or, you know, going off to college for the first time. Right. You know, you know all bets are off. Blah, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. So temporarily, mm-hmm. it could conceivably be worse than, not that isn't a defense of keeping right. what was there. Right. It's just, you know, a concern. Sure. No, yeah. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, we need a saucer to cool the cup sometimes. Right. We do. Right. Sometimes we got to pull the whole fucking thing down and burn it to ground. So, salt the earth. Like when you it. find a spider in your house. I'm sorry they had to burn <laughs> your house down. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, do you want to go ahead and plug your comic? Uh, yeah. Um, my com- comic is called The Republic. Mm-hmm. And... It is going to be a four-issue miniseries. Um, it's post-apocalyptic, as I as I mentioned in the setting we talked about. Um, the approach I went. There's uh, different ways to mm-hmm. to uh, go with your setting. I went the route of you know a couple centuries after the event that led to the downfall. The, okay. the event itself is not critical to the plot line. I do know what it is in my head, but Good. it's not necessary to know. I do like stories that do that. Yeah. Where it's just like, no, this is just the thing. Don't and worry. I don't know if you have ever read uh, Canical for Leibowitz. I have not. Um, that is a post-apocalyptic book that is set probably a thousand years or more after okay. um, the events. And one of the aspects I liked of that was the... Um, current day people finding things from the past and misinterpreting Mm -hmm. what they mean Ah, and seeing things slightly differently. Sure. So, and I just, I going back to the analogy of game of Thrones and walking dead, walking dead is very good at telling personal stories Mm -hmm. um, of individuals and how they react to the apocalypse, which I've tried to do in my own humble way. And then game of Thrones has a larger scale, Mm -hmm. more epic you know, battles, things like that, which is something else that I wanted to put in as okay. well. So when can we look forward to buying this? Um, my hope is to have the art and everything done um, in the first half of next year. And during that process, my hope is to secure a publisher. So mm-hmm. if everything, if the stars align and everything goes perfectly, I would love to have you know, it out at some point before the end of next year. Well, I think by being on this podcast, you've guaranteed that you're going to get in the ear of several publishers, because I'm sure <laughs> they all listen. They to all listen podcast. to you. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, love absolutely. It. <laughs> so, 
All right. Well, uh, uh, give us your name again. I'm Tim Watts. And I'm Damien Harmony. And uh, as Ed would say, uh, may all of your dice roll 20. <laughs>